0: Welcome to a special edition of The Mockingcast, which is highlighting the recent release of our quarterly magazine. This issue has as its theme, The Church. It's full of great content, and in just a moment, I'm going to have our editor-in-chief of the magazine, Ethan Richardson, on to preview the contents and talk a little bit about what it's like to put together a small circulation magazine. If you want to subscribe to the magazine, which is a lovely periodical, I mean, it really is, you can subscribe at magazine.mbird.com. and all supporters, all financial supporters of Mockingbird get a subscription to the magazine as a token of our thanks. So you can support us at emberd.com slash support slash donate so please uh, if you benefit from the ministry please consider supporting us and you can get a subscription to the magazine. I also talked with Molly Worthen who was interviewed for the magazine. I continue and extend that conversation. Professor Worthen teaches at UNC Chapel Hill and is a contributor to among other publications the New York Times and has written several books on American religious history and life. And the podcast concludes with a panel discussion that I moderated earlier this month in May at a conference sponsored by the Missio Alliance called Young, Restless, and Always Reforming. The panel featured Jared Ayers, the pastor of Liberty Church in Philadelphia that hosted the conference as well as Professor Kai Bum bon Lee of Biblical Seminary, Professor Todd Bollinger from Fuller Theological Seminary, and Carlos Sundberg, the president of the Nazarene Theological Seminary. And now with uh, no further ado, I give you my conversation with Ethan Richardson and the other conversations that follow. Rockingbird staffer, friend of the show, friend of mine, all around, jolly good fellow, as they say. Ethan Richardson, how are you?
1: I'm good, man. How are you? Uh,
0: I'm doing all right, man. I am doing all right, and we're. This is a special episode, not our normal Friday episode, about the church issue of our quarterly magazine, of which you are the editor. Correct.
1: I am. I am. Yeah. It's uh, It's my my pride and joy, my baby.
0: Now, you know, I, I think somebody tweeted out an article to Mockingbird, didn't they, recently about the art of the small circulation magazine?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I actually, I didn't get a chance to read it, but we are certainly a small circulation publication.
0: Like, what's the circulation of the magazine?
1: Right now, we're printing... Um, let's see this for the church issue. We printed 2000 copies and let's see about a thousand of those will go to subscribers and individual orders. And then the next thousand will either pawn off to people at conferences or, um, we're also trying to get folks at seminaries, um, copies and, uh, trying to get the word out that way. And, um, yeah, we're, we're definitely still in, I mean, we've said this a, a bunch of times, like Mockingbird, we're not super good at the whole self-promotional thing, which if you're not good at one thing, it's probably a good thing not to be good at, I guess. But, um, but at the same time, the magazine is so, it's so beautiful, it's so good, and um, we want to get the word out.
0: Yeah, as soon as I was at a conference recently, um, it was called Young Restless... And always reforming. It was uh, by the Missio Alliance folks. And they, you know, I, I, I moderated one of their panels and we had, I set up a little display table. People could not keep their hands off the magazine. I mean, just like they pick it up, they come (laughs) through it. I mean, there's, it's like a toy. I mean, it it really is a beautiful um, piece of literature. I mean, it's, it's just got a nice feel to it. Like people were really impressed uh, about how it was laid out and put together. I mean, it's just a really lovely piece. Periodical. Thanks, man.
1: Yeah, thanks. It's I mean, one of the main one of the main reasons we wanted to do it was purely aesthetic. I mean, just wanting to have something people can hold in their hands. And, you know, the site is 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 our meat and potatoes. You know, it's it's what we do every day, and that's never going to change. But at the same time, there's something there's something still to, you know, holding a beautiful paper thing in your hands, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, that, it's interesting because the folks at uh, tablet magazine now, um, who, uh, who do one of my favorite podcasts Unorthodox, they, uh, they tablet has gone to a print magazine print only. None of the content is available online. Uh, and it seems like they're picking mm, up subscribers. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, but it's kind of a, that's a sort of, it's a retro thing, right? Like, yeah, it is. It is. So how long does it take you from start to finish to get one of these, to put these things together? Like, is it, is it, I mean, I assume it's a pretty laborious process.
1: Yeah, man. I mean, it's, it's funny because like I had to like write down some notes for the church issue because I'm already, you know, gearing up for this next issue, the mental health issue, uh, which uh, is going to be chock full of, Really heartening stuff, you know, but, um, but yeah, the church issue was, it was like six months in the making. I mean, we, um, we start off with a few ideas of who we'd like to interview. Um, we're still at the point now where we will kind of, we'll reach out to people to, to write, um, and we'll get submissions too. We have, we have a poetry editor who sends in, um, who receives all these, uh, poetry submissions and, and then, um, and basically the back and forth of going through, um, an essay with a writer and, and doing that with a long form essay is, uh, is laborious. It takes some time.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's a labor of love, I assume. I mean, it's kind of one of those things that you like, like the soup Nazi, you suffer for for the soup, you suffer for the magazine.
1: I suffer for the magazine and, and you know, it's, it's a suffering that I'm, I'm happy to do.
0: Well, that's the best kind of, uh, yeah, the, Jerry Seinfeld in an interview with Howard Stern said that what you really have to do is find, uh, the, the suffering that you can live with. And then, you know, because Stern was like, don't you want to stop making jokes in Chinese restaurants in your head? Or don't you want to like He's like, no, why? I mean, this is the suffering I can live with. Like, what else do I do? <laughs> and, you know, there's something about that, right? I mean, like, when you find the thing that, you know, there's work to anything that's meaningful in life, but the work that, like, the, the suffering that you actually can live with for and, and dwell for the sake of sort of something that's that's lovely.
1: Totally, yeah. I mean, the, the best, like, and this isn't even, uh, this isn't suffering. It, it's a lot of work, um, but... But one of the one of the best moments, and, and this is something that Dave and I have both talked about, that when you're in the editing process with a writer, and they come back and they feel as if the writing sounds more like them than it did when they sent it to us, um, that is such a thrill because we haven't over edited, we haven't like used our voice and supplanted it on a writer, but we've actually just sort of cleared away the dross and it's allowed the person to actually speak in a way that they couldn't before. Um, And that's, that's not always what happens, but it's such a thrill when it does.
0: Yeah. Now tell us about some of the contents. What are the highlights uh, of this issue? Like what, what in it should readers, what makes it worth, Spending the eleven dollars, right? It's eleven dollars.
1: It's thirteen.
0: Thirteen. So the thirteen two, dollars. Two more dollars. Yeah. The thirteen yeah. dollars. What, um, what? What? What's the? What's the thirteen dollar draw here in this issue?
1: Okay, so, I mean, to be honest, it's a really daunting issue to think about. I mean, everybody has an opinion about the church. Everyone has beef with the church. Everyone has an idea of what the church should be, and so we kind of felt like m- maybe we've maybe we've bit off more than we can chew here. But um, but what has come through is is so um, so awesome. So we have interviews with Molly Worthen, um, who is also going to be featured on this podcast, right?
0: She she is. She will be the next voice people here after yours Uh. beautiful
1: and then um and so we also do an interview quick q a with rodney stark who is at baylor and he's talking about sort of the sort of universal uh religiosity of uh, kind of in the same um same vein as uh david dark and talking about how like we we worship more than we think and and even folks who don't um don't worship or or go to services on Sunday. Um, worship more than than they would think. Rodney um, Stark, David Dark. I know. There's yeah, it's, yeah, it's I know. Um, we have an essay on church shopping. An essay DZ wrote about uh, the Benedict option. I did something on church history uh, with with our friend Emil Brunner, and. Of course, we always have these like fun lists. So there's like there's a pastoral care no nos list, uh, courtesy of Frank Lake, and then we have uh, church movies. There's an essay on
0: preaching, um, and there's the lead the first essay might is one of my favorites. Straight out of Corinth, what the church can learn yeah. from NWA, yeah. the early '90s rap group, and that's written by Jacob Smith. And I actually quoted this in the panel I moderated. uh, Oh, awesome! At at this conference, uh, when I love this passage, when Jacob says, "When the church forgets this truth, uh, that basically there's not not a the difference between Christians and non-Christians is noetic. It's something you know. It's not some different sort of being. It's people that know they're redeemed versus people that don't. Uh, When the church forgets this, she gets herself into all sorts of trouble. Instead of making herself irrelevant, the church it has an NWA anthropology has something to say. It can speak to the culture at large. A church with a low anthropology can see herself as part of the problem and in humility, share the good news of God's grace. A church with a low anthropology is not shocked by the sin of the world, but can minister to people, dope man and gangsta alike, free of judgments <laughs> and assumption.
1: Yeah. I mean, if that's not like the common thread, I don't know what is. Just the church is constant need to go back to understanding uh who it's who its congregants are. You know, so often it tends to be kind of this there's this distinction between the church world and then the world at large. And um if if we did anything well in this issue, I hope it's that we we broke that barrier down. And we're all people, uh suffering people who need a word of grace.
0: Ethan, thanks for all the hard work you do on this.
1: Yeah man, thank you.
0: And looking forward to the next issue. Magazine
1: yeah, mental health. Get ready.
0: Imposters of life. Magazine. For the first time on the Mockingcast, but sort of a friend of the show, honorarily, because she made a major contribution to the Mockingbird magazine. Molly Worthen, Doctor, Doctor Molly Worthen, right? Professor.
2: Uh, prof- Professor is fine. I mean, I, whatever your mode is for however you p- refer to academics when you have us on your show.
0: What about your grace? I
2: don't know if I could if I could presume to that one as much as I would like to.
0: Like, so I've read I followed your work over the years. I'll tell you what, um, I think academics are generally not good at titular stuff like titles of books. The Apostles of Reason, I mean, like that how'd you come up with that?
2: I so you like it, you're saying you like the title.
0: I love it. I think it's I think it's it's inviting, it's interesting, okay. it's engaging. I mean, it's, it's sort of like it, it just makes you think, oh my gosh, like what is that? What's this about? Like, but yet, but yet it, it invites the person that's like, you know, people don't browse at bookstores anymore, but if you did, like it invites you, oh, this is interesting. Like, I think I know what it might be about, but maybe I
2: don't. Wow. Well, I'm so glad to hear that. I'll have to pass that along to my publisher. They were it was my idea and they to their credit were open to it uh, even though it is perhaps a little more opaque as a title than publishers tend to prefer. I guess I I was just playing around with words that seemed to have something to do with what I was writing about and I was attracted to Apostles of Reason because it's a paradox. Um you know the idea of an apostle evokes faith-based Claims to truth, uh, not not claims based on reason, and the book is all about paradoxes. It's all about the paradoxes that enliven and sometimes trouble evangelicalism.
0: So you, because so you're, it's fair to say you're an intellectual sort of person. And my guess is you go to cocktail parties where people use the word evangelical and they don't know what the heck they're talking about. Not well, not. Let's just say, not your friends, but other (laughs) religious historians, right? And so, does that aggravate you sometimes? Because you're like, this is just a messy world. I'm not saying I'm necessarily, you know, uh, I'm not on the team or against the team, but let's just describe it accurate.
2: Well, it is a really problematic word. And it's, you know, it's a word that even um, people who would claim it as a label for themselves uh, fight over endlessly. And that's been true for, for decades and decades, if not longer. So I do often find at, at cocktail parties or, you know, any kind of social event where one's work comes up, inevitably, uh, right after I say what I study and teach about and write about, I am asked to define evangelicals. And so, you know, I've, I've tried to hone a kind of efficient way of doing that in in a context that doesn't allow one to go on at, at great length about Baptists versus Pentecostals and everything in between but it's it's always it's always difficult um, and people uh, often you know in the context of secular academia they're primarily asking um, in the context of politics, and they want to know what the bottom line is, you know, for any theological distinctions you might draw for politics. And in in my approach to evangelicals, I've tried to steer away from that a little bit and, and say, look, you know, this political story of the rise of the Christian right and the culture wars, I mean, I see it as in some ways a continuation of a really long intellectual and theological story that goes back centuries, frankly. And I'm not saying that, you know, the immediate context of American political history isn't tremendously important. You know, the the civil rights movement and the reaction that it provoked, uh, the history of the Cold War and anti-communism, all of these things are so important for the context of evangelicals and their activities in politics today. But that's not the whole story. And to me, it's, it's not necessarily the most important story.
0: Do you know Daryl Hart's work? I do. uh, I do. Like he, I mean, he said. Well, I read a book of his a few years ago, and he says something like, basically, the pop, you know, sort of uh, New York magazine, you know, New York Times cocktail party, wherever it is in the country, the take on American religious history is fundamentalist, modernist, evolution. But he thinks that really, the real action was old school. New school, old side, new side, sort of continental versus a a kind of more American religious Mm. experience. And that basically, by the time you get to fights about evolution in the 20th century, everybody's on the American side. You're you're the new side. Like, hey, we're getting an edgier, you know, more American form of faith. We're more about conversion than catechesis. You know, it's more about decision than pilgrimage. Is
2: that like – is there something to that? I think there is. I mean – Daryl Hart. I I really love Daryl Hart. Uh, He's just a wonderful man, and and, uh, I respect his scholarship a lot. He did not like my book. He didn't like my book very much at all. (laughs) I did not know
3: that. I did did not know that. He wrote a pretty mean
2: review of it on the the, uh, blog that that a small number of of American religion historians uh, follow. I I, I have no hard feelings, but I will say that, uh, you know— Hart really thinks that the concept of evangelical is totally bankrupt and that it obscures far more than it clarifies. And he's very, I think suspicious of any effort to rescue it and define it. And, Uh, I think he, he, you know, if historians fall typically into two different camps, uh, which I will label the splitting camp, those historians who like to divide things up into small groups and point out contrasts and push back against any attempt to generalize. Uh, And then, by contrast, the lumping camp, those historians who like to generalize, perhaps overgeneralize in the interest of stirring the pot, provoking debate, uh, getting people to think. Um, I mean, we need both in the profession, but I sometimes I wonder if if Daryl is uh, often more of a splitter and objects to my lumping tendencies. I think he's certainly correct that uh, so much of uh, what we think of as evangelical in, in our context, I mean, has to do with what's happened to Protestant Christianity, at least some of its traditions in, you know, in the context of, of American culture. But I think that some of the more essential uh, dynamics and tensions in evangelicalism have a have a longer history. And, you know, I talk some in my book about the history of the idea of biblical inerrancy as so many evangelicals understand it today. And absolutely, that has been formed uh, in important ways in the American context. But I think y- you need to trace it back to the way in which, you know, the, the second and third generation of, of Protestant reformers wrestled with uh, the scientific revolution and wrestled with, you know, the philosophes of the enlightenment and, uh, the, you know, the Catholic counter-reformation. If you, if you want to find the roots of that faith and reason tension that animates ideas of inerrancy today.
0: Do you think like when people like, you know, I've taught at some evangelical schools and one time in an interview, they asked me about my view on inerrancy. And I said, why don't you just tell me what you're really asking? Is it about women's ordination, <laughs> or same-sex marriage or six-day creation? Because you're really fishing for, like, like, if I disagree with you on three hot-button things, but say I get there by the same view of the authority of Scripture, you're going to say, no, you don't. Right. Is that just kind of, is? It, I mean, it's a complex placeholder?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, inerrancy, I mean, all kinds of interesting things go on. Beneath the surface of that word, and I think it's tempting for outsiders to really grossly oversimplify it uh, and and also throw around the term biblical literalism in, in a way that's that's really becomes quite meaningless because I've never encountered a fundamentalist or a self-described inerrantist who is actually a literalist in the sense of not allowing for genre to operate in scripture uh for not at least selectively showing interest in cultural context which even inerrantists do uh quite frequently as long as it serves i think that the the interpretive end they're seeking
0: and it, honestly isn't it sometimes entertaining like if you're like my wife grew up Uh, you well, you're a scholar, gothard, I kind of homeschool. Uh, had I mean, she has a vibrant faith today, but took a it it took some piecing it back together Mm. and and some time away from the Mm. church. I didn't grow up, I mean, I I would say my religious upbringing was civil, religious, pagan, United (laughs) Methodist. Like, we went to church sometimes twice a year, Mm -hmm. like whether we needed or not. And I was led to Christ by a fundamentalist kid. And when I say that, I mean. Real, I mean, I, tech, in the technical use of the term, mm. <laughs> and I never sociologically ever wound up in even really. I went to I went to an evangelical college, Messiah mm. College, mm. but I went because I thought uh, I never went to summer camp, and I grew up in Jersey, and our youth group was eight kids. I, I wound up going to the Methodist Church. My parents, you know, were married, and I just thought, well, you just you. I I guess I'm a Methodist now. And so I thought, well, there's three girls to every guy and the food is good and you can take religion classes. It'll be like camp. Uh, but there is something to the, to the vibrancy of, the, of, of, of that. I mean, there's this kind of, there's something to it that I think people that look from afar don't understand.
2: I think I think you're right. Uh, I mean, I was actually just at Messiah uh, in March to give a talk. And it was so interesting. I, I had a lunch with the faculty and we were talking about this term evangelical. And I said, you know, is it one that people here use? And they said, well, faculty, yes, but our students, not at all. Our students would not recognize it as a label for themselves. And I was kind of baffled. I thought, That just seemed like an extreme statement. But, you know, my anecdotal experience bore it out. After my lecture, a couple of undergraduates came up to me. Uh, You know, faculty had basically made attending my lecture a class assignment. So (laughs) it was very nice.
0: Was Doug Jacobson there?
2: Uh, You know, yes, he was. Yeah. Yeah, he's a great guy. Yeah, he's great. And I asked, I asked, you know, just these, these, these couple students, you know, do you think of yourself as an evangelical? Is that a term you recognize? And they, they looked at me, I don't know, like I had a lobster crawling on my face. They're just total, total befuddlement. And, um, it suggested to me a couple of things. And, you know, one, one is the kind of unformed character of, of the faith that a lot of these students seem to bring into college with them. And I talked with the faculty earlier about at least how today in its current incarnation, Messiah is very committed to exposing students, many of whom do not come from a holiness um, Anabaptist background of any kind to that tradition, often to the surprise and skepticism of their parents. But the second thing that it, it, confirmed for me is the way in which younger evangelicals you know, the so-called millennials that pundits are so obsessed with are really quite alienated from the the narrative of the Christian right and this characterization of evangelicalism as a synonym for Jerry Falwell and the moral majority. And they, they really, I think resent um, any label that might encourage people to immediately lump them in with that very, uh, aggressive style of politics. That's not to say they're necessarily liberal on the various culture war issues, though. In, in some cases, I think they trend that way more than their parents did. But but they really are reacting against the kind of politicization of the term as much as anything.
0: The the maybe like on one level, like you have this the armchair historians view, right? It's like okay, mainline went left wing in the sixties and seventies. That led, you know, to a kind of backlash. And then the evangelicals went kind of, you know, more a majority and started to care about abortion. But is there a pox on both your houses kind of dynamic where like, there's a kind of, um, people don't want to go to church uh, and just get politicized all the time.
2: Right. Uh, I, and I think when they, when they poll, uh, Christians, you know, they, they tend to say, no, we don't like, You know, we don't like to hear politics from the pulpit. But I think the reality is that uh, American politics, both both ends of the spectrum, have become so polarized, um, you know, since roughly 1980. I mean, the the left is as much to blame for this as the right. Uh, You know, it is in the way that it is uh, very difficult to be, you know, a a pro-life Democrat in in so many contexts. Um, And and the or if you're an atheist on Fox News,
0: you have to defend absolute truth. Like, I, what's the guy Greg Gutfeld on the Five, who who is not religious at all, but is, but he talks like Francis Shaver. You have to have mm. absolute truth. You have to have this. You have to, and then like, you're. It's very funny because he uses all this language from evangelical apologetic stuff, but then he says, "But I'm not religious," and, but we need absolute truth. it's just a fascinating thing. Like, if you're if if you're a liberal, like Kirsten Powers. You feel awkward because you're, you know, well, I had a conversion experience and I believe, you know, and if you're a conservative and you're an atheist, you almost have to be this kind of traditionalist atheist that's a fan of religion. Hmm.
2: Although, you know, I mean, I think I think Catholics in this country are, you know, pretty pretty evenly split down the middle. You know, they are, they are the swing voters and they have a, you know, very robust, uh, you know, set of social teachings that just doesn't fit neatly at all into any American political box. And, you know, it's been kind of entertaining, uh, you know, over the past couple of years to watch both American conservatives and liberals try desperately to fit Pope Francis into their mold or or to critique him while claiming that their basis for critique is, is, you know, Catholic doctrine rather than the way in which American politics have kind of infused their interpretation of doctrine. So, you know, I, I wonder if, if that is part of Francis's appeal to Protestants is the way in which, you know, he, he is a reminder uh, of something that's always been quite obvious to anyone who considers the Catholic tradition that, that, uh, you know, religious doctrine cannot ever translate neatly into one or another party platforms, at least not in our system. I mean, the, the question of, of big or small government is, is really a fascinating one. And, you know i think I think it has to do with certain impulses that were really kind of infused into the uh, the bloodstream of evangelical Christianity you know in the revolutionary era and this um, this sense that you get from you know the the revolutionary sermons of people like the great Baptist preacher Isaac Bacchus that you know a a big centralized power would stand in the way of a Christian obeying the authority of God and the Bible. Uh, and, and, you know, th- throwing off the tyranny of King George, um, and throwing off the tyranny of the Anglican Church, you know, just became sort of, uh, fused with, with evangelical identity in a way that, of course, has been sort of selectively deployed because evangelicals, you know, like all political actors, have been very happy to deploy big government wanted to serve their purpose, you know, like, uh, prohibition is a, is a great example.
0: What if you could get evangelicals against Monsanto? I'm sorry, <laughs> that's Police. Sorry. Um, so, okay. So I was, I, I, did graduate work at Princeton seminary after, after mm. I did an MDiv. And I remember, I think it was my German class. Um, I sat next to this woman, lovely person, very interesting. Um, and the first, and I'm, I, I'm a, I've cursed of being an extrovert, right? So I'm always talking to people. So we're talking, like, at the break, and she had a fascinating project around early 20th century spirituality in the Southwest, and she had family in the Southwest, and kind of um, how Catholic piety and indigenous things were. So I asked her, like, do you go to church? And she said, those who study religion here at the university tend not to practice it. Hmm. So how do you get, like, I mean, how do you wind up studying what got you into being dr mollyworth like how did you like at what point were you like this is what i want to do like if it, you know like i'm gonna study american religion i'm gonna pay attention to the people um that to intellectuals are kind of weird
2: that's interesting that she said that because my perception is that the vast majority of scholars of religion uh, are insiders to that religion, or um, have recently left it, but but grew up with some personal connection to it. It's true in Catholic studies. It's certainly true in Jewish studies, and it's overwhelmingly true in the study of evangelicals. Uh, I am very unusual in not not having any personal connection to the tradition that that I study. Mo- most of my colleagues are practicing evangelicals or um, or come out of that world. Um, did
0: you date an evangelical no. at some my time? Virgin, Went only- to a retreat or some something? There had to be something. I, like, well, we're I can like- give
2: you the abbreviated version of, of my of my rather dull story. I, I grew up in a in a totally secular family um, in suburban Chicago. I did uh, coincidentally, I did grow up about two miles from Wheaton College. I I was only dimly aware of what Wheaton was. Um, you know, I remember going on a walk with my parents.
0: That's like saying I grew up, you know, two miles from Mecca.
2: <laughs> this Muhammad guy, and then I'm like 25. I found this Quran.
0: It's fascinating.
2: <laughs> well, okay. So, so you may you may have some exegesis of this connection that. Uh, you know, cannot be empirically demonstrated, but it, but there may be something to it. I do remember, you know, going on a walk with my parents and my my mother referring to Wheaton, pointing up at one of the dorms and in hushed tones as you know that's the school where they're not allowed to dance. I was kind of fascinated, but but I think I forgot about it, and and then I got to college and got very interested in history, particularly
0: where was Yale? College?
2: I did all my. Degrees at Yale.
0: I really fell into... Oh, yeah. Yale. A little little trade skill in (laughs) New England. Yale.
2: I ended up taking Russian history courses... Because my father had given me some Soviet propaganda posters for my dorm room, and I felt sort of embarrassed to have these posters that I couldn't... Um- oh, my, mine
0: too. I mean, my dad too. Everybody's dad gives me that. That's normal.
2: In college. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't really... Looking back, I don't really know why. Anyway, um, I was embarrassed to have these posters on my wall that I couldn't understand or, or interpret the context of. So I took these courses, um, which mentioned religion, and I took more history courses, and... Came to the conclusion that if I wanted to understand, you know, the human experience, uh, I had to understand religion since it seemed to be, if not the dominant framework, then a very powerful one for 99% of humanity over, over time. My great love in uh, undergrad was russian orthodox christianity i i spent a lot of time mm. studying russian language and old church slavic i i spent a, a summer living with um kind of obscure community of uh, russian orthodox schismatics called old believers you could caricature them as kind of the russian amish in uh, far northeastern alberta mm. which was really my first foray into i mean what i was doing was ethnography although i didn't really know it um I, you know,
0: R- russia saved my life. Save. is that so like, When she was like 17, she, you know, again, and, you know, she grew up very conservative, the Gothard thing, homeschool. And you could get out of the house if you did mission work. So she went and worked in an orphanage in Moscow. And she loved to this. I mean, it it saved her, it saved her life and her faith. I mean, like she came so much of who she is uh, was shaped by time Hmm. in in Russia.
2: Well, Orthodox Christianity is such a powerful corrective to some of the impulses in Western Christianity generally, but particularly in evangelicalism, that it would be easy to take for granted as the marrow of Christianity, for example, the obsession we have in the West with reconciling faith and reason, uh, the deep discomfort with paradox. If you learn anything about Eastern Orthodoxy, you learn that that, that's, that is a cultural accretion of the West, and that is it's not one that's shared by Eastern Christians, and you know their their ideas about fundamental doctrines are so so different you know in a way that I think it's really powerfully challenging to to Western Christians and I was very attracted to that um I you know I've always been I've never been a kind of uh, doctrinaire agnostic I, and I've always been very jealous as soon as I began spending any time with religious people I've always been very jealous of religious people and envious of, of their faith and you know, I've dipped in and out of, of worship. I was very personally attracted to orthodoxy for a long time, although it's a bit like trying to convert to, to Judaism. You know, it has such an, a powerful ethnic character. Um, but I never... you got to have good knees. Lots of standing. You do. Uh, well, you I have really have, you know, tremendous respect for these old believers. I mean... They make you know a typical Catholic mass look like you know a day at the water park. Uh, you know it's a, a six or eight hour affair. You know it starts in the wee hours of the morning, and there's no you know there's no sitting unless you're very very aged. It's all standing. Uh, at any rate, um, I then kind of took a detour. My first book was about diplomatic history, um, but when I finished that. I wanted to be a religion writer. i have done a little bit of journalism in college, and I, I wanted to have something interesting and useful to say about contemporary American religion. So, while my intellectual interests were pretty right ranging, I would have been very happy, you know, studying Byzantium or you know, 14th century Carthusians. I thought, well, I need to position myself to to sell articles to editors. What are they interested in? Well, I need to learn something about these evangelicals and the culture wars. So, so it was a very pragmatic decision since I.
0: That sounds like 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 that sounds like such a great Match.com profile. Like, I really would have been happy studying 14th century Carthusians, but I really needed to market myself. And I my my other turn ons include Labradors and walks <laughs> on the
2: beach. <laughs> like that's so great. Well, luckily, you know, I quickly figured out that. And I guess this is what what makes me a, a quote, intellectual historian, which is never really a label I used until I ended up applying for a job where they were advertising it as intellectual history. I I firmly believe that you have to know something about the Middle Ages, and you've got to go, you know, further back and take not just your scripture courses, but patristics and all the rest if you want to really understand modern evangelicalism. So I've been... I've been very able to scratch those itches while while still kind of planting my flag in the 20th century, at least at least you know in recent years. And I've been able to kind of continue the the journalism as well and try to try to bring in this theology into our interpretation of political events, which is you know I see I see my journalism as I guess part of part of my my broader teaching vocation. It's it's all of a piece.
0: How like how many times have like when you've been in an evangelical college invited to speak? How many times? Has somebody pulled you aside and said, "If you just read C.S. Lewis, <laughs> you would become a Christian"?
2: I'm not sure that that's ever happened, actually. I'm.
0: You're kidding. I me. I mean,
2: I, I there have been plenty of times when I've been.
0: Oppenheimer said, "If another evangelical, that he had um, he had um, um, uh, Al Muller on yeah. his podcast. It, it was so great. He said you know, like." What book if if a Jew wanted to learn about evangelical Christianity what would they do? He said I would read John Stott's Basic Christianity. Oppenheimer says, "Thank you. If <laughs> if, if I just thank you for not saying C.S. <laughs> if another if evangelical says read C.S. you will get it. I'll shoot them and myself.
2: Maybe it's because they already know I read some C.S. Lewis because I, I I write about him in my book. I I mean I I've I have always found evangelicals to be extremely gracious and their – They're very polite and subtle evangelism that is never, you know, just.
0: Is it the piety? Do you think it's some of the pietism that like kind of takes the hard edge off? Like if somebody's in the best of the pietistic tradition, there's something about like loving God, loving Jesus, loving the world he made, being decent, not being a bad witness that actually might soften some of the more hard edge I mean, like so you're talking about paradoxes. All these things are held together in ways that are organic and hmm. interesting.
2: I don't know. I mean, because Pietism can also be very aggressive um, and uh, and so so convicted in in the, the kind of black and white nature of conversion in some of its forms um, that that it might you know you, you might not imagine that it would lead to a very um, Kind of sensitive or empathetic evangelistic approach, but uh, you know I think most in my experience you know most of these evangelistic encounters I have are in the context of a conversation you know i 've been interviewing the person for you know several minutes about what you know whatever it is they 're doing that 's interesting and and then inevitably they you know they they want to they ask a few questions about me but but because it's it 's in that context of a conversation it, it just is a more human encounter than And and I think generally, you know, especially younger evangelicals have shifted away from a sort of four spiritual laws approach to evangelism. I was really interested in the conversations I had with some college Christian college students on secular campuses. I did some interviews for an article I wrote a few months ago, and and these are students who are involved in uh, kind of Christian intellectual journals and Christian study centers on their campuses. And I, I said, "Do you think of what you're doing as evangelism?" And they were. Very uncomfortable with that word. They said, Well, m- you know, that's something we debate among ourselves, and most of us would shy away from using that word because they, they think it triggers, you know, alarm bells and walls going up uh, among, among those, you know, they would hope would, would maybe listen. And, I, and so they position themselves more as conveners of conversation. You know, that's.
0: Did you ever think as a child walking by Wheaton that's where they don't dance? that you'd be the one that would say evangelism and make people laugh.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's like the greatest thing I've ever heard. I it, it is kind of a paradox, isn't it? I I mean, it's very convenient. You know, my, my folks living there, I was able to spend several weeks in the archives there. You know, some of my colleagues have, have stayed at my parents' house. They joked that they should run a B&B for, you know, historians of American religion who need to use the Billy Graham Center archives.
0: Like Jane Goodall. Like, look, here, they're, they're, they, you could see and, the evangelicals. Right outside the thing. There's three of them. Look, there's a study Bible.
2: Well, you know, in retrospect, I've realized that my hometown is, you know, heavily evangelical. And my parents were always quite aware of it and and felt felt to be outside felt themselves to be outsiders. And I I'm sort of mystified that I was so clueless as a child. But children are usually, you know, in many ways they're they're clueless and, you know, involved in their own solipsistic activities. So I suppose I was no exception.
0: Do you think though, there's something about the intellectual life that requires the maintenance of childlikeness? It, like, like, I mean, Chesterton says you take a four year old to the zoo. They're like, Oh my gosh. Cause they don't know there should mm. be elephants. And then a 14 year old at the zoo was like, uh, <laughs> you know, texting, <laughs> whatever. But like, is there something about to be a really good scholar and live the life of the mind you have to have a kind of curiosity about the world that has to at least mitigate some cynicism of adult. I mean you have to like look at like oh look at these people and the way they pray and the way they do this or the way like when I mean, you seem to like look at things in a way uh, the way at mockingbird we talk about it and we're kind of like probably of a very specific kind of theological brand but i think most of us probably are allergic to prescriptive because we think you really find the sweet things of life in description, Mm. like thick description, Mm -hmm. not like, because once somebody prescribes something where it's left wing, right wing, you know, don't walk on the grass. I want to walk on the grass. But if you describe reality, there's an invitation that is open-ended.
2: I think that's exactly right. I, I I mean, and I, I think, um, I, that, that's that's what has appealed to me in my sensibility in in doing you know continuing to do a little bit of journalism um, and it, it, I, was, I take the same approach in the archives and I tell my students you know our our aim in in these courses uh, is is radical empathy is you know trying as much as possible to achieve mm. the impossible which is to totally inhabit the perspective of the people we're studying no matter how alien they are to you, no matter how horrific or morally reprehensible, you may find their views. Uh, your job, you c- you can impose moral judgment eventually. I don't rule that out, but your first job is is to really see the world from their perspective, and I think that's crucial. I think that's what makes the humanities uh, such powerful preparation for citizenship.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's funny, Karl Barth, who, you know, great 20th century theologian, said about Schleiermacher, who was, you know, in the 19th century, the big, you know, some people say the father of modern or liberal theology. And, you know, they're played off against one another. But, you know, Barth said to his students, you can't hate Schleiermacher until you first loved him and, dare I say, are tempted to love and love Mm. again. And there's something about it's interesting, though, right, because this is it seems like there's no centrist ground. In the country anywhere, but one piece of centrist ground is like, let's get rid of the humanities, trade mm-hmm. jobs. Like you, know, you mm-hmm. hear, it, you hear it, like you hear it on you the do. left and the right, like it, but from different perspectives. Right. You know, what one is like, oh, academics are all wacky. But the other is, oh, we got a manufacturing economy. You know, the, but there's, but don't, do you think, like, if we actually looked at the university as at least in part in the humanities as a school of radical empathy, maybe we'd, like, have a center again?
2: <laughs> I, I would, yeah, I would love to think that that argument would be widely persuasive, and I, I, you know, this is why I, I preach it to my students at the start and the end of every semester, and hope that some bit of it, you know, wins its way back to their parents' ears, or the ears of, of state legislators, and I find often that you know the students who who take my classes, you know, they're already in the choir. You know, they're there because they are already sort of persuaded of of the you know the mission of the humanities. Um, but then you know they come to my to my office hours, you know, toward the end of the semester, the graduating seniors, and they tell me these stories about how you know I just had a student come uh, who who said that she had gotten an, an internship at the bank Merrill Lynch. And she was competing against all of these business majors. And she sat down with the interviewer who said, oh, thank goodness, a history major. I am so sick of these boring business majors. And she ended up getting the job offer because the Merrill Lynch people saw her as capable. Mm-hmm. You know, they were probably so concerned with radical empathy. Maybe I'm being unfair to bankers, but I think they were more interested in her as a creative thinker and a problem solver.
0: Well, she practiced the empathy. I mean, they could yeah, see in her that, something. That's like, probably true. She understands the human condition. And like in a crisis, she probably will have resources that we've got algorithm guys and gals. We've got people that crunch the numbers, but this is a person. Right. That you know, that if if things, you know, happen that we don't understand, I mean, this is a smart person, but a person,
2: right? Right. And of course, you know, the other thing I, I try to stress to my students is that the, the, the point of history is to learn to see ourselves as historical creatures. And, you know, evangelicals particularly, all all humans are like this to some extent, but evangelicals have a particular penchant for a historicism, you know, for a kind of primitivist approach to religious authority that that seems to imply that you know the the Bible sort of fell straight through untouched through the you know the 20 centuries into their laps and you know maybe there was this this gap in history between the apostles and the founding of their particular Baptist church and everything you know in between is is irrelevant and and the aim of Christianity is simply to mimic. Uh, in, you know, in a perfect way, exactly what Christ and, and the apostles uh, did and, and intended. But of course, to understand, you know, how any any congregation or any person in the 21st century interprets the Bible, the quote, Bible alone, right? You have to understand the accretions of the 2,000 years of, of history in between and, and all the the complications of our immediate, you know, context the past couple of centuries. And if
0: you pray to become a New Testament church, you could become the Corinthians, which would be bad, <laughs> like, even by contemporary moral standards. Right. Like, that's, I think the New Testament church does not look like 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 Rick Warren would never apply to pastor any of right. those churches. Right. <laughs> because they're all a mess. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean,
0: they're just really weird.
2: But I, and I think that that's – I mean, this is something that younger evangelicals have – gotten interested in. You know, these historical questions, you know, those of them who are keen to find another model for being a culturally and politically engaged Christian that's different from what they see in their parents' generation, that's different from the caricatures flying around. I mean, I I see them, you know, selectively in the kind of classic evangelical fashion of, you know, picking and choosing, you know, from this smorgasbord to create a a very individualist interpretation. But still, I I see a a kind of renewed curiosity in the broader history of the Christian church.
0: So does this warm the cockles of like your heart, if there's any Hegelian in in you that like, and this is an oversimplification, (laughs) but that like you have evangelicals flocking to tradition and Pope Francis saying, hey... Why in order to ordain women as deep? <laughs> like it seems like there's you got know, Catholics taking historical criticism seriously. You got evangelicals like, oh you know, great tradition. I mean, is there like maybe there's some kind of like synthesis?
2: That's interesting. I don't know if I'm quite I love Hegel, but I don't know if I'm such a committed Hegelian that I would I would I would hope that I would extend my hopes that far. You know, because I, I think that the the marrow of these traditions and what sets them apart from one another uh remain remain pretty pretty unchanged uh you know evangelicals are never going to stop being the most individualist of all the christians i mean if 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 individualism becomes kind of more pronounced as you move west uh it it certainly finds its apotheosis in um in in american evangelicalism
0: But aren't all, even Catholics are individualists in America. I mean, aren't all Americans congregationalists of Well, to some, to some degree. degree. There's a kind of, there's a kind of like, you know, is that evangelicalism or just American?
2: Sure. It's, 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 it's both. It has to be both. And, and this is, you know. The, the history of, of, of Catholicism is, is is riven with these tensions between American Catholics and, and the Vatican for precisely you know this reason uh, that that American Catholics accommodated themselves and absorbed and, and built upon this American ethos. Uh, you know Leo the Thirteenth labeled it a heresy in 1899. You know Americanism it was an ism. Really? So uh, so of course you're you're right um, and. And I think you know it's 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 a mistake to characterize the Catholic Church as this monolith. We know it's you know there's plenty of internal dissent. It always has. Uh, however, I, I I do think the magisterium means something. You know, I, I do think it 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 affects uh, Catholics' outlook on the world and on authority, and it and it shapes how they dissent among themselves and and how they apply their Christianity outside the church.
0: But don't. Imagine. Don't evangelicals love magisteriums? It's the Gospel Coalition or John Piper. Every evangelical just has their own. They're always
2: building false magisteria. They're always issuing manifestos and declarations. Yes, you know they're they're.
0: Do you ever want to consult with them and just say, "Look, I'm not like necessarily a religious believer, but like I could make a better manifesto for you, less (laughs) reductive, more articulate. It'll have more future purchase." Like, but that's just not... I don't know if I would I get anywhere would, with
2: that. And I have no interest probably, in that. Could, I, I'm, I don't have a dog in this fight, you know?
0: I, but you could probably make like eight seventy five dollars 75 <laughs>
2: an hour <laughs> well, when work you put like it like that.
0: that. I mean, okay, can I ask you like a professional question as a historian? Or as a, well, as a journalist slash historian and kind of demographer and describer of American religion. So Mockingbird is a weird thing. Like we're at like do you, like I I, I often it, it's very interesting like we had our conference in New York, we have non Christians speak at our conference, and yet, uh, it it would seem, it would seem to have some of the openness and non judgmentalism of mainline Protestas, Protestant stuff, but some of the robust kind of, uh, theological commitment of evangelicalism. But no, but we. It just seems to not fit and it it it's vibrant and lonely mm. I think i mean i don't i mean I don't feel lonely because I like the people but i mean it, but on one level when people try to describe what Mockingbird is it's just weird mm-hmm. and do you find that like more and more like is this a, is this an increasing trend where there are other people in pockets of American religiosity that they just don't that we don't have the right um, kind of cartography to pl- to place them?
2: Uh, yeah, I think, you know, I encounter a lot of people who have what I'll call the kind of mockingbird ethos when I go to evangelical colleges. I mean, I think evangelical academia is full of people who are incredibly committed Christians who are unshakable on the fundamentals, but also deeply critical of their own traditions and and learn it enough in the history that they're they're, they can contextualize themselves and and they also they also really tend to dissent from some of the political orthodoxies that have become associated with evangelicalism Um, but they i mean for the reasons you say i mean they feel that that evangelicalism as a as a label on this on this spiritual cartography is is an uneasy fit if not one they would reject entirely but, you know, uh, the terms, you know, need to remain general enough um, to have any purchase, you know, in our... In
0: you need the gestalt yeah, of the thing. Yeah, to, you can't get yeah. carried
2: away with all kinds of subcategories and, and, and things. I mean, that's... Journalists uh, want, you know, quick and easy labels. And we're, we're sort of stuck with evangelical as a label, you know, whether we like it or not.
0: And it's not it's <laughs> not meaningless. I mean, I, like, you know, it's funny because Ethan, who interviewed you for the magazine, and who pub- mm-hmm. he's the, yeah. you know, editor and chief of the magazine, who is, and just a sharp, a guy's sharp as a tack. Um, a couple of months ago on the podcast, he and I were discussing a piece he wrote and we were trying to define evangelicalism. And I said, look, like what I learned at Messiah college, and I would still say, and if this would make me evangelical, i and I'm also a pastor in my, and one of my day jobs. So like, I'm, I'm, you know, I mean, I believe in the Bible. I even think the leather's genuine. <laughs> um, uh, and my, I even have a Cambridge thing that's not bonded leather. I mean, I—it's funny that evangelicals are so into the Bible, and they buy bonded leather. <laughs> you never get that. If you really believe it, you buy. I see. You know what I think I learned was this: uh, Jesus is public truth. There's something about like the way God's revealed in Jesus, in in this expression of faith, is is sort of non. It, 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 it's a benchmark thing. It's the center of the whole thing. Now, it's not that something Buddha said couldn't be true or something Karl Marx said couldn't be true, but the standard is the revelation of God and Jesus, that that's public and that you ought to share it with people, that the Bible ought to have this kind of ability to speak over against us, even though we manipulate it at times and everybody knows, like, wink, wink, we don't, you know, but in some sense, like, it ought to be able to critique um, even our sort of half-baked interpretations. And the other thing is faith has to be personal. Uh, Now, I think that the the, the nature of – it's funny. This is probably one of the tensions you're talking about. Like for a tradition that values personal faith, it's like you have to have a formulaic way of expressing it. Mm. (laughs) And probably in your research, you're seeing the millennium. No, if it's really personal, it gets to be personal. But I think those things are actually meaningful. Like, I mean, I think that in in whether people are – you know, disparate on culture war issues or whatever, like those kinds of things about the Bible, about a Christocentric, you know, um, faith and ethic and, and a sense that this is, um, we're not going to be a group that um, hides the line of the bushel. We're contesting with public mm-hmm. truth. You know, like, I, I think that that's probably at the heart of what the thing is.
2: I think that's right. And I think, I think what you've said, I mean, it preserves some of the distinctions between, Evangelicalism, Catholicism, liberal Protestantism, and orthodoxy, uh, while also severing uh loyalties to political outcomes that have become kind of married to evangelicalism in our context,
0: do you feel like as someone that's like a scholar that I mean you have so much political knowledge and you're kind of you said when your ethan interview with Ethan like, hey, I want to get away from the political stuff, but do you feel like you're just the it's the cultural moment where like you want to leave the bar at 1230, but people are buying your shots and you're just st- and it's like, hey, you know, and every time you want to sort of, hey, let's go, get back and get more perspective. Something else happens. Like, I'm a wonderful Christian. I mean, here's my Bible. Liberty. All right. Second yeah. Corinthians. I mean, like, are you just like, OK, I'll get back like Rocky. I'll get back in the ring for one <laughs> more fight.
2: Well, uh, I, ha- I have realized that. Um, if my primary interest is theology to get anyone to care about it I have to smuggle it in in the form of political analysis so thats I do a lot of that but speaking of speaking of having to get away I have to catch a bus to go relieve my babysitter so I'm afraid that I, I have to run.
0: This was lovely I really appreciate it. and I hope we can talk again sometime um, you know next time you write something interesting we'll have you on. Um...
2: Yeah you're a really fun interviewer thanks for the opportunity don't know much about history, don't know much biology, don't know much about a science
3: book, don't know much about the French I took, but I do know that
0: I love... I, I really appreciated, uh, I appreciate all the talks, but particularly the past two because the story about we'll have to recognize each other, <laughs> really uh, that is where the rubber hits the road. I mean, practically... Um And, Jared, just some of your reflections about life on the street in Rittenhouse Square and how different things are when none of your neighbors are Christian and where you're the professional idiot, uh, so to speak, which is a great job title. I mean, what's more humbling than that? But, because I think that, um, I was struck by, I mean, this is, this is a great, we're great conversations and really intellectually, uh, invigorating. But so much of what we talked about was around the areas of ecclesiology as it relates to eschatology and as it relates to sphere sovereignty and the, you know, the transformation of creation uh, and the creation mandate, which is found embedded in the you know, implicit commands of Genesis 2, which is great stuff. I mean, I'm not, I'm on the team. Uh, I'm not in any intellectual, but my sense is that people don't live there. Like, people don't call you, right, pastorally Jared at two in the morning and be like, hey, look, uh, what's our millennial view again i mean this is like because it's killing me because i'm not sure which fear is the sovereignty has been exercised in you know like i mean people generally like there's there's a pretty basic human stories of love hope fear betrayal um, anxiety fragility and i think that like it, some of the i wonder if some of the contextual jewels that we haven't talked about are things like Simon you Picator, which is basically what Brene Brown talks about in Vulnerability, talks how hey, it's okay that you're a mixed bag, and you don't have to self-curate your Instagram to make everybody think you're a self you're not. <laughs> or I think of like imputation, where I watch Pretty Woman with my sister uh, and sister, or my sister-in-law and my wife, and I cried through the whole thing because it's an imputation story where a guy treats a whore like a princess and she becomes one, and she treats an emotionally unavailable guy like a prince and he becomes one. So I'm wondering, are there some things that like in the tradition that that maybe we have have not talked about um, that maybe are some crown jewels that are worth continuing to reflect on as we go beyond the walls of this gathering?
4: I, I, I guess one part I would say is <clears throat> I, I think the thing I want to keep pressing is the notion that um, the, theological reflection is not for the purpose of better theological reflection. Theological reflection is for the purpose of faithful living. It's about embodiment. And so, um, I think about, um, in Los Angeles, we had a well-known pastor who fell through a scandal and to sit like knee to knee with a man who he had baptized, whose whole family had been reached by his ministry. And to have this person sit there and say, you know, was it all a sham? Was it all, you know, was it was he, he i mean every now this now the stories are coming out about the way he lived it was it makes me doubt everything you know in this moment i go back to augustine's letter to the donatists right um the the who wouldn't really I mean, really exactly <laughs> but see but this is <laughs> it's this, see, everyone's nice see, but, stand here see, I mean, the point is that that the theological tradition that i end up back like the way that you go back to theosis so quickly right you go back i go with this place augustine's letter to the donatists when the traditories pa- pass over bibles when they're traitors to the faith, the entire notion is they do not have to have their, their converts do not have to be rebaptized because the efficacy of the sacrament is not in the vessel. It is in the God of the sacrament, right? It, I don't explain the Donatists to him, but what I do explain is the grace of God that comes through really, really broken people. So we don't have to minimize what he did. We don't have to minimize the abusive language that he did, the abuse of power, the sexual abuse, all the parts. But we can talk about a God who works through really broken vessels. And we can talk about it with a kind of confidence that allows us to hold and minister to people because we've done theological reflection.
3: Just adding to that, um, somebody was asking me about millennials and holiness and does that work. It doesn't work from a legalistic understanding of holiness. But people are looking for authenticity. And so there has to be an authenticity in terms of who we are theologically and how we live out our lives. And I think that's what people are looking for, and I don't know that it matters what tradition that we necessarily come from. People want to say, do you really believe what you're talking about? Is it really genuine? Is it really real in who you are?
0: I want to read you something, uh, a paragraph from, we publish a quarterly magazine at Mockingbird, and this is our church uh, edition. It's a lovely, lovely, I have some downstairs too, It maybe wants a copy but this is uh, something my friend who's an Episcopal rector in Park Avenue. I mean, that's, I guess, um, uh, sounds so Christian to me and yet so not in a post-Christian age. But the title of his essay, and this is good contextualization, I guess, called, um, it's called Straight Out of Corinth, What the Church Can Learn from N.W.A., and, um, which is an old 90s rap group for those who don't know. Uh, he said, the church is not exempt from low anthropology. It's sadly humorous to pontificate about the virtues of the early church. The early church was a mess, filled with sinners. St. Paul, in the first epistle of the Corinthians, points this out. Paul lets them know they are far from a pious community, that there is immorality amongst them that shocks even the pagans. This is very important to understand, anthropologically speaking, there is no difference between Christians and non-Christians. When the church forgets this truth, she gets herself into all sorts of trouble. Instead of making herself irrelevant, the church that has an NWA anthropology, has something to say and can speak to the culture at large. A church with a low anthropology can see herself as part of the problem and in humility share the good news of God's grace. Now, I wonder, we talk, we've heard a lot about um, the kind of Reformation commitment to uh, transforming structures and this sort of, we've heard the skewing of the captivity, captivity to Christendom, but how do we avoid... Like praying the prayer of the Pharisee, like looking and saying, Oh God, thank you that I'm not like that Christendom church of yesteryear, captive to its culture, and thank God I'm not like the pagan culture now in the post-Christian world that wants to captivate us still. I mean, how do we pray? The publican's prayer. Um and and, and you know, I might I, I almost find myself echoing Dave Fitcher, like and in weakness, um, and take our own take the Reformation doctrine, the emphasis on original sin seriously when when we're actually looking at the world and and trying to quote unquote transform it
2: yeah <laughs>
0: Yeah, i think uh just kind of related to that
4: um, yeah it's it's um it's it's always a temptation for every generation to think, and we were just having a conversation about this um but about uh you know how how you know we can see the best and uh just the 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 uh, our predecessors are are very i mean how could they ever think that way and uh um so you know, I mean, we can pick on megachurch a lot. Um, but, you know, in some ways, we, even in the missional circles, uh, the young and hip, um, uh, we, we, we do have a church ink 2.0. Um, you know, we have different sets of jargons and we look different and uh, we have different techniques. Um, but, you know, we tr- tend to trust in that and, uh, become, be very prideful about that. And I think, um, you know, we, we have to have, we've got to be vigilant. We've got to be vigilant, um, to, to take radical depravity seriously and, uh, and it really has to start with us.
3: I don't know if this answers this, but you know, I think that um, part of the problem is that people put on labels, either Presbyterian or, Todd was reminding me that Hillary is a Methodist, um, but but we have put on labels. It's like a mini
0: microcosm of the election debates right here, you know. I'm not claiming either
3: one. No, I'm we're not. not. <laughs> you know, and and I don't know that that answer that this answers this, but I think that this becomes the huge problem I, of, of the labeling and then actually believing that those people actually re- represent something of faith. Um, you know, I remember as, uh, as a child wondering about why the Protestants and the Catholics were shooting each other in Belfast. I didn't understand that um, until finally I realized, well, those weren't really people that were following Christ in that way. I think the big challenge goes back to um, what I said before about authenticity. I think that for too often we've been even willing within our own faith traditions to wear the labels and say, I'm Christian, I go to church, therefore, um, you know, in Russia today, about 68% of the people would identify as Russian Orthodox. Uh I think 0.5% of the population attends church. So there's a difference between the label and the true follower of Christ. And so, actually, over there, we didn't use the word Christian. It had to be the word believer. We knew that that meant somebody that was really following Christ. We'll probably find something similar like that will happen here as well, something that identifies genuine faith versus the labels, because the labels really don't mean anything.
4: Well, I I think, actually, as Presbyterians, it actually created a crisis. Uh, It was a well-known crisis, at least. uh, The stated clerk of the PCUSA wrote an open letter to Donald Trump. The conversation about the fact of where he'd come from and, and there was quickly a, a removal from, I, I think there's a different frame I want to take, which is instead of, uh, thinking about the candidates, thinking about the culture that creates the conversation. This is closer to this one where labels are used in such a way that we find ourselves over and over and over again having to say not that. So Fuller faces this all the time with the word evangelical. We put out an entire issue of the, our Fuller, our new Fuller magazine on evangelical where we wrestled with do we still hold the term evangelical? What does that mean? What does that mean to us? What is it? How do we talk about it? Because um evangelical means something pretty different um, to the media. And what I think it points to is there there needs to be an embodied way of living in the world that goes beyond labels that the world is not gonna understand. The shorthand is not gonna happen until we do it for a while. Um my, my positive example of this is is um is Pope Francis. I mean, uh, so Chris Loney, who wrote a book about, um, he was a Jesuit, who wrote a book about leadership um, out of a Jesuit tradition, now leads the largest Catholic health organization. He was asked to write a book on Pope Francis really quickly, raced it to press, called Why He Leads the Way He Leads. That's what it was called. And I'm going to save you all 20 bucks, because here's the answer. Um, the answer was basically this. Chris Loney looked at Pope Francis's life and answered, you know, who is this person who has reinvigorated Catholicism, particularly among the young, who is like seen as one of the man of the year, who's actually changed the narrative about Catholicism so quickly. And the answer was this. Why he leads the way he leads is this way. He's a Jesuit. And what Loney was basically saying was this. Pope Francis is really remarkable, but he's what you get if you make a Jesuit pope. Like this is what Jesuits do. And I keep thinking a day needs to come where we're able to talk about for our traditions and say, when we see a positive example, that's what it looks like. That's an evangelical. That's a reformed Christian. That's what it means to be Nazarene. And it's not until it is embodied in the life of people through a life of formation in a positive way will we be able to point to it. And I think that's the place that we have lost is that we have lost the ability to look at people and go, there's a representative of our tradition. There's a community of people who are representative of our tradition in a way that we have very few to look at. And when you see them, I think it changes the narrative.
0: So can I, I want to like pick up on one other thread that was, that was spoken of a lot. Um, common grace. So th- this has been kind of talked about as a crown jewel of the tradition. Uh, that enables the tradition to interact meaningfully in the world. But I want to, you know, T.S. Eliot says the problem with philosophers, and I think you probably include theologians, is unlike poets, they often don't know what their metaphors mean. Like a poet never uses a word, you know, without a good one anyway. But but he thinks philosophers do And I wonder, like, a word like common grace, like, why wouldn't we call it special grace or something like that? Or, or like, or G. Peterson, Christ plays in a thousand places. Because um, when we have this common grace idea, doesn't it make it seem like, well, it's just kind of out there, and we have these lenses, and we know where it is, and we don't really need, we kind of need to listen, but we know it when we see it, uh, especially, you know, it's in good places like family and this, and maybe if if we have, is there a way we could uh, come up with a reinvention of that perspective that made us a little more humble, a little less controlling, and a little more open to the other, but no less zealous to go out and, and, and be engaged in the culture, just engaged in maybe more of a theology of the cross way than theology of glory. Is that does that make sense? Is there are there ways that we could do that?
5: Yeah, I think so. I you know that's obviously a uh, something that Abraham Kuyper in particular um, you know emphasized and brought to the front of of his own you know theological reflection, and I uh, it's both a, a concept that I love, but I but it, I think you're right. It, there's ways in which it comes off as triumphalistic, or uh, you know, um, or or even. Arrogant times. I think, um, I really appreciate it. There's a, um, so Rich Mao, your former president, uh, wrote a great little book called, uh, Abraham Kuyper, a short and personal introduction, where he, uh, um, he, he's applying this to a lot of Kuyper's thought, not, not only this idea, but, uh, he talks about, he has one particular chapter that's great called, uh, Abraham Kuyper Meet Mother Teresa, uh, and he, he argues for what he calls a Kuyperianism under the cross. And so, um so still you know so so a you know a a kind of christianity that wants to engage culture that appreciates christ's reign over all things that expects to find god's grace at work everywhere uh, but that but that maybe arrives with a little bit more humility and arrives in the in the posture of service rather than as someone who 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 comes with with all the answers prepackaged you know i
0: final question now, you all are. So this is like double jeopardy. right your bets in. Uh, uh I mean, you, you all are people that care about theology in the academy, but also are practitioners and people who in, either currently or have spent extensive time um, in the practice of ministry and mission. So uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher, nineteenth century, uh, you know, great theologian. Uh, his theolo- his systematics is a little different. It's you know, it's a, it's probably not one that's on everybody's shelves, and there's probably some reasons that you know we should recommend it with caution. But he says, you know, I, when I do theology, I'm not thinking so much metaphysical claims that are abstract, but, but what is at the essence of Christian experience? and So he says, for instance, that, hey, uh, I'm not going to talk about creation ex nihilo, because whether or not it's true, I mean, it's for metaphys- metaphysicians and stuff like that, because nobody gets up and says, oh my gosh, I have a crisis of faith. I don't know if the world's eternal or if it was created at a fixed point in time. And, um, but he says, but providence, you can't live without. You know, whatever reform it takes, you can't live without some understanding that makes sense that, hey, the world is not random, it's not chaotic, it's not a mess, that, that it's ordered, and it's ordered in a way that is consistent with the revelation of God in Christ. So, as folks who are, you know, helping us think through what it means to reform a tradition for mission, not just abstractly, what are, what are some touchstones whereby you can sort of say, okay, this is how we know we're probably in the right uh S- sphere of thinking and conversation, and this is where we're probably getting off the rails and a little bit um, in the speculative, abstract thing that that might be intellectually engaging, but yet might not be close enough to the ground um, where Christ is on the streets.
3: But I remember in nursing school, they would we had this discussion of you know what about listening, really listening to what the question really is, and the example was when the little three year old comes up and says, "Mommy." Where do babies come from? And you want to go into this incredible oh no moment of what do I need to explain and scientifically, what am I going to explain about this and all the details when that's really not the question that the three-year-old is asking. And you have to listen to that question and maybe the three-year-old just discovered that another family down the street is bringing a new baby home And their question is really, you know, will there be any other children in our family? But we've jumped to the conclusion of what that answer is, I'm going to have to give this child. And you give them, you know, far more than they ever need. We tend to do that in mission. You know, when the rubber meets the road and you're finding people that want to know Jesus and how does that work into my daily life, the big theological answer is not what they're looking for now, we might present it to them in a simple way through a theological lens, but that's us learning how to contextualize this and to listen really carefully. What are they really asking? Why are they asking about creation? There's probably a backstory to that. And that's where we become missional and we're able to really minister to them at the point of their need.
4: So um, Dallas Willard says to believe something is to act as if it's true. So oftentimes what I like to think about is um, I start with the notion of where people are embodied. I think people are already embodying their theology. They just haven't reflected on it and thought about it. They haven't articulated it. So to start with where people are already living and try to help them reflect and then reflect with them. So what is the way in which we're living, the choices we're making, the way we show up in an embodied world? What does it say about what we believe? Because there is a theology we're all living out at one level or another. To get people to reflect upon that puts them, us into a great conversation about what is reality, like, like what's real. And when we realize that what we're, trying to, what we're saying with our theological precepts is as humbly as possible, we're saying we're trying, to, we're trying to conform ourselves to reality. We're probably wrong, which is why we need to always repent, but that we believe there actually is a real God who really does have attributes. And that that God, if that that, you know, and these things, there's there's theological issues at stake here. So if God is an impersonal force, then that force can't love. But if God is love, well, then there's a nature of God that shows up differently than in a way that talks about an impersonal force, right? So theology is ultimately a way of helping people be able to make sense of of reality in iterations, and and iterations only because we're always going to be wrong to some degree. Right? This notion that we have a God who speaks and a God who calls and a God who is actively involved in the work of the in the world and in, in invites us to participate in it in a way that is stunning to consider and that must be as relevant for the seminarian trying to determine, oh God, what are you preparing me for in seminary, as it is for one of my dear friend's who after a lifetime of faithfully serving God with a mind that is still profoundly active now spends most of his life loving his wife who is slowly leaning into dementia. It ha- That sense of vocation must be as relevant for him as his world becomes smaller and smaller and smaller as it is for the young seminarian whose world is ex- exploding before them. And for me, that sense of of presence and purpose of God who is actively involved in this world who is deeply engaged in it and who is in the process of transforming this world, those things are deeply rooted theological questions that only that we get the privilege of entering into with real people in real space in real time and as we listen to them which I think is exactly where it starts we, our first lesson we teach is leadership begins in listening the number one
0: thing we teach Jared our host, last word <laughs> no pressure
5: and uh, feel so much pressure. Um, so Leslie Newbegin, who uh, is here of mine, and I know many, many of yours. He he always talks about how um, contextualized Christian mission and ministry has to live between accommodation and irrelevance. You know the sins of sort of liberalism and fundamentalism. And um, you know I think there's a there's a British uh, uh, literary critic named Terry Eagleton who. Uh, in talking about secularism in a society says, you know, societies, uh, become secular not when there's no religious faith, but when people aren't bothered by it anymore and agitated by it. And that for me is a good kind of yardstick of, uh, you know, is, is the, is the Christian proclaiming that I'm doing meaningfully engaging? You know, is it, am I, am I unfolding what's happened in the world through Jesus such that people are provoked by it or not? That for me is a good measuring stick. So that, you know, I know if any of you um, follow the lectionary in your congregations, the uh, the gospel text for Easter Sunday, I, when I was studying that passage, I noticed something I hadn't when I had studied the passage previously. So when, uh, you know, when, when the initial announcement of the resurrection is made, uh, you know, for most of the disciples, it seemed to them an idle tale. So when I dug into that, the you know, the Greek word there is uh, is not just idle tale like a fairy tale or something like that. You know, it's the if we translated it literally, it would be BS. Um, you know, they they heard the announcement of resurrection and they said BS, leros. Uh, and, I, you know, musing on that, there's a way in which, you know, the first believers in Jesus had to first be the first disbelievers in Jesus. They had to be provoked. You know, they had to hear the announcement of what Jesus had done and say, Lay Ross and then be wooed into belief. And that, that, for me, is kind of a yardstick of whether, you know, of whether I'm living, be- whether or not I'm actually living so between... It's when your
0: layros detector exactly. goes off, right?
5: Yeah, when whether or not I'm living between accommodation and irrelevance. Well, if people hear... The announcement of Jesus, and are bothered by it, and then provoked into belief. Uh, so, yeah.
0: Thank you all very much, uh, and thanks to all our presenters. Thanks for listening to this special episode of The Mockingcast. And don't forget that you can subscribe to the magazine that we talked about on our website, magazine.ember.com. And have a great rest of your week. And we'll see you at our regular time on Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up post another week ends. Until then, fare thee well.